The lyrics to the next hymn are in your hymnal, number 93, but also printed on your order of service.
Thank you, Anna. Michelle. Okay, this is the point where we uh, receive the tithes and offerings. You know, we don't pass the plate anymore, but we have a box in the back. And if the Lord leads you to give, please do so. Let's pray. Dear God, most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you so much for all of your blessings, the best blessing of which is Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Please take what little we give back to you for the furtherance of your kingdom here and around the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the doxology. We pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. tired of Christmas yet? No. Not yet. You know, there comes this point like right after Christmas, right before New Year's where I'm just kind of Christmas exhausted, right? I just need three or four months nap and a gym membership to get past Christmas. Right now I'm still on Christmas prime time, if you know what I mean. So there's spices and myrrh and all this great stuff going on. We'll be in Luke chapter 1 first. And this is the time when we get a hearing from the world. Now, one of the things that we've been talking about, the reason we talk so much about the law of God in relation to love, is the first way that people usually get a glimpse of Jesus Christ is in one of you. You do deeds of love and mercy and kindness. And so we did talk a little about history. And we talked about previous civilizations. And we talked about the Romans. And we talked about the Greeks. And as much as we bring these civilizations up as maybe the height of human industry at the same time. These were the most terrifying and bloodthirsty civilizations that have ever existed upon Earth. Slavery was nearly universal, and when they died, nobody that was there at the time missed them very much. This is the Roman world that we're looking into here, after the Greek world. And after this time, within a few hundred years, as Christianity starts to spread, there are different things that happen. There's places like, uh, have you ever looked up on the map Austria? They have Vienna there, which was a, originally a Roman settlement. And then later on there was Geneva, which was originally a Roman settlement. A lot of people don't know that Geneva was founded by Julius Caesar in about 60 BC. And as the gospel goes forth, 
There's a transformation that happens through societies. Now, this is a controversial issue in the church. Most of you are already in on it. If you're not, I'll tell you like this. There's a group that says there is no transformational component in the gospel or the effects of the gospel. The church is just made for preaching the gospel on Sunday morning and stay out of the business of the world, right? The world is run according to natural law and Christians live according to the Bible, right? There's this other view that takes it to the other side of the spectrum. The law becomes the gospel. Loving your neighbor becomes the gospel. Yeah, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's kind of like a slogan of that view. Well, really, the gospel, it's impossible to preach the gospel without words. When God had the opportunity to tell us what he thought about these things, he wrote a book that's about 1,500 pages long, right? The words are the necessary means through which a person apprehends the knowledge of God and comes to saving faith. But the works are the expression of Christ with hands and feet that they can see and participate in. There's a reason the Bible says never, never preach to a starving man, right? Uh, when we get into Luke here, Luke wants us to know that the things that he's writing down are true and real and accurate presentations of historical events, not fanciful stories, not analogies, not metaphors. The Bible has those things in places, and that's what makes it confusing, right? If you ever read the Revelation... And you take it too literally, you can't understand any of it. And yet at the same time, if you're not taking it literally, you also won't understand any of it. Those of you that have studied hermeneutics, you know what I'm talking about. But here, Luke has traveled around for a few years with the Apostle Paul and with Peter. You can read about his missionary journeys in Acts. And he's sitting down after having talked to all the apostles. And they superintend this thing that he writes when he is full of the Holy Spirit. So here's what he says in Luke chapter 1. He wants you to know exactly what he's trying to do. He doesn't sound like a storyteller. He doesn't sound like a movie maker. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now he says a very similar thing in Acts. Because Acts, if you didn't know, is Luke part two. First there was Luke, and then there was Luke strikes back, which is Acts. Um, this word Theophilus, people argue about this, right? Is Theophilus an actual person he's writing to? Or is it the cognate of the word, which is Theos and Philos? Philadelphia, filial love. Theos meaning God, God lovers. Is he saying the people that love God and he's writing it for them? Or is there a specific person? It doesn't really matter. But either way, he's trying to write an orderly account. Now Luke, the reason they call him the doctor, is his background was in education. Being a doctor in those days was hard to do just like it's hard now, right? You have Matthew, you have Mark. He might have already actually read John at this point. In other words, the Gospels aren't necessarily in the order they were written, but he says he's already read some accounts by other folks, and that's probably what we have in the Gospels. And he says here that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, this is not the way a storyteller tells a story, right? This is not, you know, uh, 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 what's that big book about the wizards and stuff? This is not Harry Potter. Uh, uh, and really, it's not what we do with the gospel. It's not what we do with the nativity. 
The nativity has become very cute and quaint with us. There's almost few things that you can buy more toys of in the Walmart aisles right now than the nativity. And it's become beautiful, and it's become soft, and it's become manageable when it was horrible. We talked about last week that the incarnation was the primary humiliation of Jesus Christ other than the cross itself. Having to take on hands and feet and take on the created order in order to save us, the eternal Son of God coming down from his glorious station, seated with the Father and the Spirit, coming down and taking on flesh, having to go to the bathroom in his nappies. Are you kidding me? It sounds cute. It's not cute. There was blood and there was fire. And there was no place for them to be. There was no place at the inn. So she had to give birth in a stable, which as beautiful as we make it, and as sanctified as we pretend it is, was an insult, an insulting thing. So he goes on here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now this isn't the Zechariah from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. It's somebody named after him. Of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, for those of you that are students of the Old Testament, these things are clicking in your mind, and that's why he's doing them. A high priest was only allowed to marry from a priestly family. They had a specific genealogy, a specific lineage, a specific background and training, and a bloodline. And they were only allowed to marry into it to maintain the sanctity and the holiness of that line. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of statutes of the Lord. Now, let me say something a little controversial to you, but all doesn't mean all in the Bible all the time. If you're thinking to yourself, these two people were completely and perfectly sinless, it's not really implying that. They also needed a Savior, right? We're going to see in a minute that Zechariah himself is going to fall into a sin, one of the primary sins of the Old Covenant coming into the New Covenant, and a sin that we actually commit, right? But as far as like general stuff goes, better than you or me. That's what's being said there. They were pretty right on. If you want to try to be righteous enough for God, fine, but you're going to have to trump both of them. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, miraculous births are not something new to the New Testament. Jesus' was special and distinct and different from all the rest. But people having a hard time having children, and God interceding and bringing about their having children through miraculous means, happens many times, including Samson and Samuel and others, right? So having a special birth was part of being a special person. In the Bible, there are always special times, special people, special words, and special events. Now when he was serving as a priest, last week we talked about the priesthood of all believers. If you remember us talking about that, raise your hand. I just want to make sure I'm getting these things across. That in this lesser way, we all as believers are drawn into the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Not the priesthood of Aaron, but the priesthood through Melchizedek. All of us carry on the priestly work of the intercession between the people and God. When Moses was practicing the priestly gift, he cried out to God not to destroy the people. And when he was practicing the prophetic gift, he spoke the word of God to the people. So prophet, priest, and king, if you want to understand this entire thing about Jesus coming, you have to understand it within the characteristics that come from Scripture, and that's why this priestliness is being called out. Before God, when the division was on duty, they had a rotating uh, session. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. They actually rolled dice. It was kind of like Vegas, a little different, to enter the temple 
of the Lord and to burn incense. In the kids' study today, we talked a lot about incense. Uh, Incense is a lot broader than we might think it is. We might think, oh, well, that means that they were hippies and they were, you know, uh, hanging out burning some incense and other stuff. That's not what it means. Everywhere you would go, there would be burning incense. You wouldn't go into a house and they wouldn't burn some incense for you because of the beautiful smell and it reminded them of God. It says in the Old Testament that the incense that was burning in the temple were the prayers of the saints rising up to God. Not literally, but figuratively. Of course, all of these things are figurative. But figurative things are real. That's what you have to remember as a Bible-believing Christian. Figures are not nothing, just to fiddle around in the brain and then be forgotten after lunch. Figurative things are things through which God often chooses to work with his power. So even things like we do, like the Lord's Supper and baptism and other things, these things are real things through which God brings blessings because he chooses to, not because they have some inherent power in themselves. So here are some of the, uh, how many of you have one of these? This is pumpkin spice mix. How many, come on, how many of you have had a pumpkin spice something this season already? Oh, I've had lattes and lattes and lattes, right? Why? Why do we do it this season? Well, it's because it's fall. Is it though? You can't have one in the spring? It's because these specific spices are from old and signs of the cross and the nativity. We do those in specific to have a specific purpose. They were spicy spices, and they used to burn the cinnamon, and they burn the cardamom, and they burn the nutmeg, and they burn the cloves. There's some lemon peel in there. There's some ginger. It's meant to remind you of the fragrance of Christ. Please do not tell this to Starbucks. They'll stop making them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you would always have something in the house. Now, there's a reason that Presbyterians don't do incense, right? It had become basically a practical functioning sacrament in the old church, and all the people were compelled to participate in it when really, it's not talked about in the New Testament or the Bible. We're not allowed to impose upon you things against your will just because we think it's a neat trick, right? But it doesn't mean that it's not good to smell things. That's it. I'm just doing this as a practical exercise. What's a Put it in your hot chocolate, put it in your coffee, with a little cream, a little, little whipped cream on top, a little sugar in there, a little butterscotch. Oh, I was looking at butterscotch recipes yesterday. I never knew, right? It's like butter and uh, brown sugar and vanilla, and you melt it together. And, oh, that's good. Oh. That's why they had the incense. Now, we've talked many times about the steak, right? When they came together and they did the big sacrifice, it was always a bull. And the laver, which they washed at, and the place where they burned the meat was probably the size of this entire section of the room. And they would lay the bulls out there on fire, and the people would be gathered around by their thousands. And what were they smelling in the air? Steak. <laughs> right? Just like now, just like now, most people couldn't afford steak on a regular basis. They didn't eat every day. They'd be like, you know, ground beef this day and chicken the rest, right? But you'd smell it, and it would be cooking, and the fragrance and the fat would be burning, and you'd be smelling it in the air. 
And that was the fragrance that he wanted them all to smell by their thousands. But they'd also put lots of spices on top to float through the air fragrantly to remind them of their relationship with God. So that's why he burned the incense. And again, in the Old Testament, it defines it for us. It says, why do we burn the incense? Well, the incense burning is the prayers of the saints rising up to God. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now it doesn't, it doesn't include that as just a random fact. Oh, he happened to be standing over there. He could have just wrote, he was standing over there, right? He says he was, the angel was standing by the altar of incense. The people for a thousand years have been crying out to God, praying for an end to their misery. Is there anybody that's like suffered more than the Jews in like physical history? I can't think of anybody offhand, right? And so the people have been crying out for a savior and he appears next to the altar of incense where they have a huge amount of incense burning all the time and wafting through the air and the people can smell it and the people can taste it and they can't wait for lunch. Kind of like some of you. <laughs> And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. And I know you guys could totally handle an angel visit. You're much more mature than Zechariah. You wouldn't <laughs> fall on your face as if dead and start slobbering on yourself like these guys. You know, John, he's like, he's an apostle. And in Revelation, he fell down as if dead. And the angel had to reach out his hand and give him supernatural comfort just to get through a conversation. I know you're above such things, but they weren't. They were, you know, primitive people. They were. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink or be filled... For he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his mother's womb. Now this thing about not cutting his hair or drinking wine, what is that from the Old Testament that sets somebody apart? What kind of vow is that? The Nazarite. Very important back then, right? We think that, you know, shaving the head is what makes someone holy. But with him, it was that you don't cut the hair at all. Samson, remember, didn't lose his strength from touching something dead, and he didn't lose his strength from taking that wild woman he ended up with. It was when he cut his hair, and the last vow of the Nazarite was broken, and he lost his strength until it was recovered. Well, in this, he's set apart as holy, so he can't touch any of the normal things. Remember, you were required in the priest, in the priestly class, to drink wine on a regular basis, and they're telling him, don't even let his mother touch it, because the child in her womb is already holy. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah. And turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Because I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Isn't that the same thing that Abraham said? Here's the first thing. Okay, it's not just some guy. He's not just some Jewish believer even. He's not just a member of the synagogue. He's not just on the session. 
This is the acting high priest of Israel, and an angel of the Lord comes and announces to him, and the first reaction he has is doubt. Now that's why Luke wrote that in the beginning, and that's why he comes to this. Israel was in a state of doubt. Often, frankly, the church is also in a state of doubt where they fear what the Lord might do if they truly believed him and acted according to it. And he talks about the Spirit of God coming upon her to do this thing. The Spirit of God has to come upon you. Remember John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But right before that, there's this entire theological tirade between Jesus and other people where he's explaining to the priests of Israel how salvation really works. The first thing he says is, you know, unless you're born, you've, you've all been born, but unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. You have to be born of water. You also have to be born of the Spirit. Now, you have about as much to do with your spiritual birth as you had to do with your physical birth. You're basically along for the ride because then he caps it off with this. The wind blows where it wants to. You see its effects, but you don't know where it's going and you don't know where it's coming from. It's invisible. It's powerful. It does things to you. You don't do things to it. You don't decide where the wind blows. You just try to catch some in your sails, right? In this same way, he's being subjected to the power of God. He'd always said he would be subject to the power of God if it came upon him. Well, now it has. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you the good news. The angel's mad. There's a few people in life you don't want to have mad at you. One of them's an angel. Right? You remember that time when all the people rebelled against God and God sent out his angel and like 30,000 died in a day? Or when the Assyrians came through and they were sieging uh, uh, Jerusalem? And the people prayed, and the angel of God went out and, and, uh, and killed 70,000 in a day. These guys are serious. But he takes offense at the fact that the angel appeared to him in this supernatural way, and still he doubted. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went back to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept to herself. She kept herself hidden, saying, The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. She's talking about not being able to have children. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Who's that? Mary, right? Of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. When we start up again in January, we'll be starting up on the kingdom of God, what it is to be a member of that kingdom. So we're going through these in prophet and priest and king. 
Let's move ahead to verse 57 of chapter 1 of Luke. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about all through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. So now we're going to read this prophecy. Because we said no one can be born just of the flesh, you also have to be born by the Spirit. I assume that all of you know that if you're believers, you're already filled with this Spirit. Not necessarily with this prophetic gift, but with exactly the same Spirit. You're empowered, you're reborn, you're spiritually alive, you're not spiritually dead. And so you've been given gifts by your Heavenly Father to do these things upon earth, which He has called you to do. This is Zechariah's prophecy, but it's not yours, right? Do you have the strength to live as God called you to be, or will you be afraid and fearful like Zechariah and doubt the word of the Lord? Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. Now we'll go on with the story next week. Especially those of you that are young. Notice that even John the Baptist grew in the power of the Spirit through his life. He had the witness of the Spirit. He had the life of the Spirit. But even Jesus grew in the Lord through his life. Right now, you're in the time of that growing. We want your growing to be without doubting. We want you to become stronger and stronger so that when you're ready to go off and do these things for yourself, when you're ready to preach and you're ready to teach and you're ready to witness and you're ready to live a holy, righteous, and loving life that's a witness of Jesus Christ to the world, you will be ready for this thing. He didn't necessarily come out of the womb racing and raring to go. Growth happens through time and experience and learning. And some of these experiences are better than others, frankly. You know, I talk to a lot of people this time of year. We have more counseling appointments in December every year than any other time during the year. 
And it's people that are having a great time with their family and a great time with Christmas. And then other things hit home.